0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: Hello. We begin today with a quote from John Kennedy Toole's classic comic novel, A Confederacy of Dunces. Quote, several of the outfits Ignatius noticed were new enough and expensive enough to be properly considered offenses against taste and decency. Possession of anything new or expensive only reflected a person's lack of theology and geometry. It could even cast doubts upon one's soul. Ignatius himself was dressed comfortably and sensibly. The hunting cap prevented head colds. The voluminous tweed trousers were durable and permitted unusually free locomotion. Their pleats and nooks contained pockets of warm stale air that soothed Ignatius. The plaid flannel shirt made a jacket unnecessary, while the muffler guarded exposed Riley skin between ear flap and collar. The outfit was acceptable by any theological and geometrical standards, however abstruse, and suggested a rich inner life. We know what they say. Clothes do make the man or person, as we might say now. We choose things to wear to express ourselves, to convey our mood, to prepare for a particular occasion. And for an author, choosing garments for a character, there are other potential uses a sign of wealth or poverty, for example, or to ground the narrative in a historical time period, to place the setting in a particular profession a subculture, or to suggest a miniature narrative, the mismatched socks, the coworker who arrives at work after a late night out wearing the same clothes as the day before, the tear in the trousers hastily fixed with a paperclip. Our guest today is an expert on the uses of fashion in literature, and not just the localized uses, the quick character and mood and tone and scene-setting ideas, but examining trends over time. And we'll have a look at writers in love and writers writing love letters, including one from the woman who loved Virginia Woolf. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. (laughs) We go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you for joining me. We have a fascinating topic today fashion in literature. You know the famous examples, right? Jane Austen's dresses and Gatsby's shirts and so many other unforgettable uses of clothing and all the ones that fly under the radar, just a bit of grounding, like the weather or the kind of car that's driven or the food on the plate, carefully chosen by the writer maybe noticed briefly by the reader, maybe not so noticed, but having an effect anyway. And the clothes that are chosen by the character, same thing applies. What does that say about the characters who choose those clothes? Who are they trying to be? What are they trying to express? So that's our main topic today. What clothes are chosen in literature and why and how has that changed over time? We'll get into all of that with Professor Lauren S. Cardin who's written two books on the subject, but first, let's have an appetizer. I've been running through some love letters that authors wrote, sometimes within fiction, and sometimes within their actual lives. And because everything is awful in the world at the moment, war is continuing in Europe, it's a dark period on planet Earth. Let's hope it ends soon, and our thoughts and prayers are with all those who are suffering and in harm's way. I hope this ends soon. So because things are so dramatically bad globally and intensely bad locally in Ukraine, I thought, well, what can we do to lift our spirits? What in the world of literature reminds us that people are good? And I thought, love, we need to look for love. People in love, characters in love, and great minds and great individuals falling in love and being in love. I like young love, young romantic love. We've done some episodes on that, our Romeo and Juliet episode focused on that. But I also like middle-aged love, or senior love, if that's the right term for it. I'll take love wherever I can get it. So in that spirit of discovery, I found a great letter from Henry Miller to Ani Snin, which maybe we'll cover in our Henry Miller episode, which is in the works. And there's the gorgeous letter from Jane Austen's Persuasion. You can practically hear that one in Colin Firth's voice when you read it on the page. I don't know if he ever played that character, but he sort of owns this kind of speech, at least for a certain generation. My third choice was a letter from Vladimir Nabokov to Vera Nabokov, which was heartwarming, especially because she was so self-sacrificing for him. She really made him and his writing career possible by removing all the obstacles in his daily life, letting him focus on the work, doesn't always get credit for that. So It was nice to see that he loved her and was willing to put that in writing. But instead of Vladimir and Vera, I landed on a different pair of V's, Vita and Virginia. Of course, you probably know who I'm talking about. Virginia Woolf, the genius and one of the greatest 20th century writers. I just say writer Instead of novelists, although she was a novelist, but she also excelled at essays and criticism. I wouldn't know which one to book, which one, to, which one to pick. Writer, I guess, will have to do. Although I suppose novelist is sort of the highest calling. That's maybe what she would have preferred. Anyway, the letter that I found is not written by her, but written to her. It's from her lover, Vita Sackville-West. It's a plain letter in many ways, plain and heartfelt and direct, but with enough flair to make it an interesting read. Now, who were these two at the time? Vita Sackville West was 30 when she met Virginia Woolf. She was an aristocrat and she was beautiful. Virginia Woolf was 10 years older and felt dowdy by comparison, though she was flattered. It's nice to be wanted by someone who is herself wantable. Both women were married at the time, but the marriages were more or less open, their husbands did not discourage the female friendships and the relationships. At first, Virginia Woolf found Vita Sackville-West and her husband boring and even somewhat stupid. All the supple ease of the aristocracy, she said in her diary of the two, but not the wit of the artist. Vita, meanwhile, was immediately struck by Virginia Woolf. I simply adore Virginia Woolf. She wrote, at first, this was in a letter. At first, you think she is plain, then a sort of spiritual beauty imposes itself on you, and you find a fascination in watching her. I've rarely taken such a fancy to anyone. Throughout the 1920s, the two increasingly enjoyed one another's company. Vita mostly doing the inviting to various dinner parties and so on. She was pressing the relationship forward harder in the beginning until their deeper friendship, or their deepening friendship, developed into a romance and a sexual relationship that became quite steamy. Vita was a writer herself, by the way. She'd written poetry and novels before she met Virginia, and in fact, she was more commercially successful than Virginia was, although she was always quick to praise Virginia and acknowledge that Virginia was by far the more ambitious and accomplished a talented writer. But being a literary genius does not necessarily make one a good lover or a good writer of love letters. There's something about Vida's straightforward approach, her openness, which helped make her novels successful but perhaps not timeless. But something about her ability to describe and explain with urgency and honesty has made her Letters to Virginia Woolf, so compelling. And in particular, her letter from Thursday, January 21st, 1926. It's more appealing, at least to me, than Woolf's letters in response with clever metaphors and sly analogies. Vita is a woman in love. She will say it and describe it and own it. It's from her heart and her body And her brain is smart enough to get out of the way of her pen. So here it is. Let's hear it. It's from Vita Sackville West to Virginia Woolf, written in Milan and mailed from Trieste, Thursday, January 21st, 1926. I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. I composed a beautiful letter to you in the sleepless nightmare hours of the night, and it is all gone. I just miss you in a quite simple, desperate, human way. You, with all your undumb letters, would never write so elementary a phrase as that. Perhaps you wouldn't even feel it. And yet, I believe you'll be sensible of a little gap. But you'd clothe it in so exquisite a phrase that it would lose a little of its reality. Whereas with me, it is quite stark. I miss you even more than I could have believed and I was prepared to miss you a good deal. So this letter is just really a squeal of pain. It is incredible how essential to me you have become. I suppose you are accustomed to people saying these things. Damn you, spoiled creature. I shan't make you love me any the more by giving myself away like this. But oh, my dear, I can't be clever and stand offish with you. I love you too much for that. Too truly. You have no idea how standoffish I can be with people I don't love. I have brought it to a fine art. But you have broken down my defenses. And I don't really resent it. Please forgive me for writing such a miserable letter. V. Hmm. Takes my breath away. Dear heart. Dear Vita, how did this end? Well, after a heightened period of physical and emotional connection and pleasure, the relationship cooled as relationships are wont to do. But it didn't have an unhappy ending exactly. The two of them ended up with a friendship and correspondence that lasted for many years. And the relationship had an enduring aspect as well, an outcome, a legacy. Virginia, for her part, although her love letters as Vita mentions in the letter that I read are a little bit artificial, a little stilted. There's a little bit of a a departure from reality when Virginia Woolf's writerly brain gets involved. Metaphors are beautiful but not as stark as what we heard from Vita. However, Virginia Wrote a love letter to Vita that is befitting her particular genius. The novel Orlando, which is essentially a work completely inspired by Vita. Virginia imagined Vita. This isn't just me saying this or critics pointing it out or guessing it. This was clear. Virginia was clear about this in her letters, both to Vita and to others. Orlando is Virginia's idea of Vita traveling through time, hundreds of years, throughout history and changing genders and outfits. Let's note, since that's going to be our topic today, Orlando has been called the longest love letter in history. The whole novel is a love letter, inspired by Virginia's muse, the woman who could say, I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. A thing a wanting thing, even now, nearly a century later, the sentence gives me chills. We will be back with Lauren S. Kernan and a look at fashion and literature after this. <laughs> Okay, joining me now is Lauren S. Cardin, Associate Professor of English at the University of Alabama. Her new book is called Fashioning Character, Style, Performance, and Identity in Contemporary American Literature. Professor Carden, welcome to the History of Literature.
2: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: So we have basically authors choosing to describe their characters and what they're wearing or or what the characters are choosing to wear, or what other characters perceive about those characters based on what they're wearing. I actually made a list of, I think, 25 different uses an author can make out of fashion. I don't know if you want me to start here, or if you want to describe some of the ways that are of most interest to you.
2: Oh, uh, well, I think that one thing that caught my attention was the ways that, uh, in in my book, I talk a lot about how American authors use fashion to characterize someone, but also the way that that character wants to be perceived by others. Right. So it's not just, this is who you are. This is your, your class or your culture. It's, this is who this character wants others to perceive them to be. So um, I think it's a way of showing how a character tries to construct their own identity, not just a way of showing who the character is, what their background is.
0: Right, right. So I want to save that because I think what, what was really interesting about your book is how you've you've found and about your work in, in a larger sense is how you found differences in the way this was done in the first half of the 20th century and the second half of the 20th century. Yes. But I thought just to orient the listeners, I'd tick through some of the different things that fashion can show. Okay. Okay. So for example. It can be a sign of wealth or poverty. Yes. Right? Okay.
2: Although there are a lot of gradations among both of those.
0: Right. (laughs) Okay. Or, for example, it could be a marker of the person's independence or not. And I'm thinking of school uniforms or other things that people do to try to embellish what they're wearing, or maybe there is a restriction on what they can wear. Maybe they don't have that choice.
2: Yes, that's a good point. In terms of independence, in terms of their freedom to kind of break the rules, break out of social norms, but it can also mean independence financially, like how much can they, mm. can they afford? Um, right. What options right. do they have? That. That yeah. changes over the course of the 20th century as well.
0: And I think a lot of people have noted this, that often people will wear something to be to go against the grain, but then they end up wearing the same thing that everyone else is wearing against the grain. So maybe they're not being quite as <laughs> as independent as they think.
2: That's definitely true. Um, just because we try to curate our public persona doesn't mean we're doing it successfully um, or signifying what we want to signify. And that's, that's a perfect example, the ways that something that initially signifies non-conformity becomes a symbol of conformity.
1: Right.
0: Okay, I had another one as being a character could be trendy or not. They could be, for example, uh, a little bit out of step, a little bit behind the times, or they could be on the cutting edge and and really exemplify kind of a a forward-looking trend.
2: Yes, like today's influencers.
0: Right, exactly. Another one I have is commitment to some ideal and I thought here we, we used to see this with the clothes that women would wear. Maybe they were going to wear pants instead of dresses, or you might see a character wearing like a hemp belt or something like that, or a tie dye shirt in a certain era might have have reflected something, an anti-war movement or or something like that.
2: I think. There there are people who really define their entire look by a desire to project a particular Mm. ideology or affiliation. And then there are people that just kind of nod to it. I'm thinking about those Jerry Garcia ties from the 1980s (laughs) from like people who were still following the dead, but had entered the corporate world, but wanted to hold on to a piece of that counterculture identity.
0: Right. Okay. Then I have revealing of some psychological trait or mood. And here I'm thinking of... Clothes that are bright colors that might be happy or optimistic or the classic dark turtleneck sweater of the brooding and reflecting poet, for
1: example.
2: Yes, colors can signify a lot. I think even wearing a lot of like clothes that are very baggy or kind of drown you even Mm. can signify something versus um, clothes that that fit that kind of even if they're not necessarily skimpy or revealing, but just fit right. I think yeah. I think fit, I think color, I think even material, I think embellishment, all of those things can mm-hmm. can signify a kind of mood.
0: And that fits right into my next one, which is sex appeal or downplaying it. You could have characters who are intentionally wearing loose fitting or baggy clothes, or you can have people wearing tight fitting or or you know, very flattering and, and attractive clothes that just based on the fit.
2: Right, right. And of course, there's a lot of debate out there about what constitutes, you know, what looks sexy or what's, right. what's too revealing to the point where it's trying too hard or, you know, there's, there's a lot of discourse about that. So um, it's kind of interesting to see the way authors interpret that too. Yeah.
0: Now, my next few are... Not so much characters and performance and constructing an identity, but there are things that I think fashion, ways that fashion can be used in fiction. Uh, one is setting. It can highlight the locale. You can orient the readers that you're in a very cold place by what they're wearing or that you're on a beach or or something like that. Another one is plot or or situation. And here I'm thinking of people wearing hunting gear or you know, an army uniform or uh, high heels or something like that, that can kind of maybe a character puts something on and it's, it's as much to help the reader know that we're moving into a new phase of the fiction.
2: I think both of those are, both of those are definitely important um, especially in a narrative where there's a lot of travel, like an on the road or something. Mm, um, I yeah. think both, both of those items speak to region as well. You know, I'm thinking of the novel, The Day of the Locust, which is very much kind of a 1930s Hollywood novel. And the fashion in that novel is so, so West Coast and so American. So I I do think there are ways that it it definitely helps to identify the culture of a region, but also, as you said, move the plot forward.
0: Yeah. And that uh, you just mentioned another one I had on my list, which was era or time period can emphasize the fashion of the day, or if a book is set in the past, it can, it can orient the reader that here we are, you know, back in a, essentially a costume drama period.
1: Yes,
2: that's definitely important, especially if a novel spans a long period of time, fashion can help kind of shift to the next the next period.
1: Yep.
0: Or within a book and I guess this is maybe plot, but I had taking an event seriously, I'm thinking of characters putting on a tuxedo or or wearing a nice gown or even a man just putting on a tie or something like that. It kind of shows an intention of the character that they they're consciously dressing up.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. And often grappling with the appropriateness of what, what they're wearing to that to that event or mm. to that space, even.
0: Their level of comfort with it. Maybe they maybe they do this all the time. Maybe this is a really big deal for them. Exactly. Mm. Okay. Now, the next few, I think, are are maybe going to feed into the kinds of things we'll be talking about when we talk about performance and identity. But I had ethnic identity and gender. Oh, and social mobility. That was the third one on my list.
2: Yes. And I think part of the challenge in talking about ethnic identity is that In some ways, this is something that gets constructed and reconstructed. That's something that I think Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and other African-American writers focus on quite a bit, as well as people of other ethnic groups, indigenous writers, for example. To what extent are you speaking to something that is really part of your community versus to what extent are you kind of copying something that you've seen or self consciously putting something on because popular culture has told you this is this is what you're supposed to wear, and so I think a lot of these authors explore how we construct a cultural identity through our clothes
0: right, and those are so deep that I think we will need to give those more attention. A lot of these are almost, you know, as basic to us as just the weather or or breathing or, <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that. So let me tick through the rest. It is pretty incredible how many different things we can see just in the clothing that the characters have. Another one I have on here is consumerism, that the author could be making a comment on it. And I have brand identification. I'm, I'm thinking of authors who... Will really go out of their way to sort of connect with the reader in some sense by referencing particular brands or mocking particular brands, uh, you know, m- mocking a character's fascination with them or reliance on them, or just sort of orienting the the reader that this is a kind of person who wears Nike or this is a kind of uh, woman who who Holds a a bag by Dolce and Gabbana, or you know something like that.
2: Yes, that's definitely true, and especially more contemporary American literature. You're making me think of Patrick Bateman and American yeah, Psycho. Exactly, or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, pages of brand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Closely related to that, I had geopolitical context and. And here, this this isn't always present, but and it may be unwitting, but I'm thinking here of characters who maybe are not aware that their clothes come from sweatshops or that they take clothes for granted in a way where the author might be kind of pointing out that there's more work that went into that article of clothing than this character seems to be uh, crediting. You know, they seem to be oblivious to.
2: Yes, and sometimes within the same novel. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of even... Uh, Theodore Dreiser's sister, Carrie, there's scenes where she is working in a sweatshop on clothes and she's miserable and the conditions are and the pay are terrible. But then within this same book, she worships fashion and it is just dying to buy extravagant clothes and, and wear them herself and distance herself from that. So it's kind of interesting to see, <laughs> to see both sides of that commentary within the same novel.
0: Right. Okay. I also had humor. That this could be the author, I think sometimes the author could be deflating their character a little bit, their own self-importance, or, or maybe mocking them a little bit. I'm thinking here of clothes that don't match, or... A coat that doesn't fit, or shoes that are the wrong color—you know, something like that—that are some way of you know, a character doesn't realize that his pants have split in half, or that there's a hole in his her sweater, you know, or something like that. Yeah, (laughs) I have here authenticity versus posing, and this seems uh, it seems connected to the performance and the identity, and we'll I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we talk about ethnic identity, for example. But I do think there is a sort of for all of these things that we're talking about they probably have a flip side of is this something that fits the character naturally or is this something that they're exposing themselves and maybe some of their own insecurities by reaching out for something that is maybe beyond their grasp and they're sort of exposing that they're more of a wannabe than a an actual
2: yes well that word authentic is so slippery in the context of fashion Hmm. i mean there, it's one thing, it means one thing if you're talking about like an authentic Hermes bag or something like that, but I think that there's this idea of, um, you know, wearing something that is authentically made by, let's say, uh, um, a person from a Taos Pueblo, it's sort of authentic indigenous beadwork versus something that is a knockoff from a, a chain store. So there, there are ways that that word can be really important in terms of something like cultural appropriation versus uh, supporting an artisan who makes this kind of work. Uh, but there are also ways that I think people use it in terms of identity. Are you being your authentic self and wearing this mm. or are you being a poser? Right, um, right. So I, it, it's one of those terms that has so many different meanings within the realm of fashion and clothing.
0: Right. And for all of these, and we're sort of at the end of the list here, and I'll explain why I went through it in a moment, but for all of these, I also wanted to kind of emphasize that they can work on multiple levels. They can be to say something about the character. They can be about the effect that the clothing has on another character, and we can see it reflected through that prism. Or it can be about the author and the author's interests or the narrator's interests. Or it can just be designed to have a particular effect on the reader. But there's sort of a lot going on. It might be, you know, for example, it would be hard to say character X wears Piece of clothing y, and that means z it can you know it can always be maybe we're we're seeing what they're wearing because we're supposed to take something from that. Maybe the reader and the author aren't on the same page about that. Maybe the character is being exposed as someone who's trying too hard in order to create that effect. And it just seemed like the more I thought about it, the the harder it seemed to sort of pin anyone down in this.
2: That is definitely true. And sometimes I wrestled with what a particular item of clothing meant for, for a very long time. Yeah. And it may not be even what the author intended, but it still might have a particular resonance with the audience or for the time period. Um, or even decades later. So um, there, I think the, the interpretations of these items of clothing on the page can be really complex and <laughs> lead in a lot of different interesting directions.
0: Yeah. Like there's an example I always think of when I was reading Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, and it said something like, she was a woman with, with spectacular curves and you missed none of it in that wool racing jersey. And I thought... You know, a wool racing jersey to me sounds like the opposite of what a, a sexy garment and clearly the narrator here is kind of pointing it out as like, man, you wouldn't believe how how amazing she looked in this in this really risque outfit of this wool racing jersey.
2: <laughs> yes, well, um brett ashley's clothing choices are kind of iconic and meant to be a little bit daring and edgy so even if it does seem slightly dowdy or boxy to us now i'm sure they were very radical at the time yeah
0: (laughs) it's like the the mr burns character in the simpsons where he'll he'll tell a joke of something like you know she my early date, the first date I went on, she revealed part of her collarbone, and you know that was, <laughs> <laughs> or her ankle, you know, and that was like very forward for its time. Okay, so the reason why I ticked through all of those is because, in a lot of ways, as I made this list, I was kind of thinking, well, this is what it would be like for any author of any era to to be using fashion, and that this would be. You know what we would see from clothing, whether it was written by uh, a 19th century novelist or someone writing today. And what really fascinates me about your work is, like I said, you've seen some differences in how the authors are using fashion during different time periods in American literature. So let's move into that and and let you explain what is it that we see in the first half of the 20th century that really stood out to you
2: early 20th century and I talked about this a little bit in fashion and fiction, my earlier book Mm -hmm. uh, I I saw American authors as using fashion to signify characters' attempts to transcend the limitations of class and race and to some extent gender. Um, I would say that during this time Paris had much more control over the direction and limits of fashion Mm. there were far more restrictions even in the US in terms of who had access to fashionable clothing. So in the literature of this period, fashion often represents class, but more specifically, the visual representation of luxury and wealth. It's, mm. it's class on display at a time when cities are growing and public life is expanding. So those who belong to lower classes constantly bear witness to this display of luxury. Um, you know, they, they see it passing by in, in fancy carriages and in opera boxes or people going to the opera um the the clothes become a symbol of what they don't have so i think in many ways the desire for for more luxury for more comfort for being part of a higher class kind of manifests itself in the beautiful clothes
1: mm,
0: right and what what was behind this this influence that paris had on fashion was it just that like, why wasn't there fashion? <laughs> you know, why wasn't yeah. it coming out of New York? Was it just that that they had so much more of the designers there or that it was just just one of those things?
2: I think a part of it, um, it goes way back. I mean, New York is, of course, a newer city. It becomes the kind of iconic modern city in the early 20th century. But Paris initially became kind of a, a hub for for style and dressmakers and and the early designers like Charles Frederick Worth because it just, it was the center of um, where you could get some of the finest materials like the silks that were um, imported there and um, it just became a place initially where there were just the most luxurious materials. And then it became home to and I apologize if I'm butchering the French, but the champs syndical, like the The haute couture houses. Mm. Um, Charles Frederick Worth was the first haute couture designer that branded himself and established an atelier and helped establish these very strict guidelines for what constituted haute couture and, um, you know, the kind of workmanship and how many dresses you had to display and things like that, the hand sewing, um, all of these things that was in the mid 19th century. And then over time, more houses joined Worth in this in this kind of cluster of haute couture fashion. And um, around that time, also we got the beginning of Harper's Bazaar. And by 1892, Vogue. So that's these magazines kind of entrenched. Here's what the Paris designers are 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 showing hmm. right now. Here's right. what people in Paris are wearing. So it, it was kind of a combination of the materials, the establishment of the first haute couture houses, the branding of these early male designers that became kind of the first celebrity name designers, and um, also the collaboration of fashion journalism in cementing Paris as the fashion epicenter.
0: Right. So it might be like, I know some people who will say, I only want to drive a a car by a german car company because of the german engineering and and back then maybe the the women of new york or the people with money would say well you might be a new york designer but i want to wear what they're wearing in paris absolutely <laughs> mm, right okay so let's talk about contemporary fiction but before we do that let's take a quick break i'm talking to professor cardin of the university of alabama about her book fashioning character We will return and ask her what we see after World War II and how things changed. Okay, we're back with Professor Cardin. Professor Cardin, what do we see after World War II in the world of fashion in literature?
2: Well, so many things change with World War II that you just start to see fashion go in different directions in the literature after the war. Um, first of all, there is this resurgence of Paris's influence on the fashion world after World War II, but it quickly dissipates with mm. the rise of youth fashion and counterculture fashion mm. during the Great Depression and during World War II. There's basically no access to Paris. American designers started to gain bigger names for themselves and uh, department stores and fashion media in the U S collaborated in showcasing these designers. Also Hollywood became a much bigger deal during the depression, mm, it was an affordable right. form of entertainment. So Hollywood started to develop a hold on, on what was in style. Right. So those influences outlast Dior's career after, after world war two. So it's, it's interesting to see how different writers start to play with this new landscape of, of fashion. Um, we see the influence of counterculture, uh, the different countercultures that develop after after World War II, the beats and later, you know, hippies. And I mean, all of these groups start to have an influence on fashion. The industry becomes more diverse and eventually more global. We start seeing fashion capitals and and Tokyo and Beijing and eventually in Lagos and you know and Johannesburg. And so that that takes away the kind of Western hold on the fashion industry too. So I think that comes through in, in more contemporary work by writers like Chimamanda and those, uh, Adichie, and um you'll see the influence of Nigerian fashion or Japanese fashion. So I think it's just become this landscape where people can find themselves in the the fashion somewhere, even if it's not, it might not be on the Paris runways and it might not be in this, you know, in the quilted Chanel bag, like the classic looks, but it's there somewhere.
0: And when you as a person looking for examples to use in your work, are you looking for any reference to clothing? Are you looking for references that are consciously talking about the fashion of the day or the the sort of high fashion we've been talking about? Is it all fair game or, or are there is there sort of a threshold for you other than just a character puts on a pair of jeans or puts on a skirt? Are you looking for examples where you can really trace it back to, uh, well, are they conscious that this is they know where they're getting this from and who designed it and, and what kind of, uh, you know, a more detailed look at the fashion that is going into the depiction of the character.
2: I look for patterns. So um, Mm -hmm. once I started noticing, paying attention to fashion in literature, I just found myself underlining it in everything I read. (laughs) Right. And then when I, when I decided to write these books, I sort of looked at everything that I'd been reading over the past few years. And, and rethinking the novels. And then I just, patterns just started to emerge in these interesting ways. So, you know, I don't think that the beat writers were big followers of mainstream fashion at, at all. I think they only, they only paid attention enough to know what to reject. If that makes mm. sense. So, but I, I couldn't leave out what I'd noticed in something like on the road um, in that novel. Jack Kerouac is just being so deliberate and describing what people are wearing. I was like, why is this person who wore, you know, jeans and chinos and torn flannel shirts and T-shirts his whole life describing everything? Why does he care what people are wearing? Mm. And um, it, it became kind of an interesting puzzle to me. I looked at old photographs of him. I read uh, a lot of the women beat writers who often just wrote about the men in the scene. And I realized it was it was kind of self-conscious. He was appropriating what workers and african americans and mexican laborers that he encountered um were wearing and copying it to some extent he was like i don't want to be i I am part of this white mainstream culture but i don't want to be identified with that and i want to copy i want to adopt this sort of disaffected look
1: you Mm.
0: know
2: he might not have realized he was doing that but that is what i believe he was doing
0: and it's also the era of like the the gray flannel suit you know so the 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 exactly. life that he was rejecting was the life of the anonymous business person who's going in and and working his 30 years to get his pension and his gold watch and he's looking for well if I'm not going to be that person then how am I supposed to dress
2: Exactly and I mean in that novel when the characters do dress up they're not wearing gray flannel suits they're copying the sort of brighter flashier looks of the jazz performers that they idolized you know Mm. they're they're not wearing these conservative suits if they if they try to dress up and impress someone and it's interesting because you know that look became iconic i mean i'm thinking of that 1993 gap campaign that said kerouac wore khakis like his attempt to wear these sort of workers clothes and be sort of anonymous and anti-fashion became fashion in a way yeah
0: right Okay, and how about another author you talk about, another writer you talk about, Sylvia Plath? What do you find in her use of
1: fashion?
2: I think it's interesting because she's writing around the same time as Jack Kerouac, but she was much more, I would say, enveloped in that world of femininity that immediately follows World War II. Um, mm. There's been these two decades of, of iconic women designers and women, white middle class women kind of changing their rules and entering the workforce and all of a sudden women are encouraged to be wives and homemakers and in the bell jar and in plus journals, I see on the one hand, this real, this deep love for clothes and fashion. Mm -hmm. You know, in her journals, class constantly describes her outfits. She seems to appreciate clothing, but at the same time, I think she is caught up in that early 1950s period when Dior was still really reigning over the fashion world. Um, this is a designer who championed a return to femininity and is famously quoted as saying, I brought back the art of pleasing. Mm. So for all the beauty of his clothes and the fantasy that they represented, Dior also, through his clothing, really scripted these limiting roles for women. And I saw that in the pages of the bell jar. You know, there's that scene where Esther throws her whole wardrobe off the roof of a hotel. Yeah. And which is so, So traumatic for me personally, but it's, it's a breakdown for her. It's, I can't be any of these women. all of the clothes are uniforms to her. This one is a housewife. This one is a, you know, a bad girl, a sort of femme fatale. And this one is an editor and this one is a poet. I can't be just one of these women. And she just throws them off the hotel. Right. So um, I, I think that's what Plath saw is the way that clothes at that time, fashionable clothes, sewed women into specific roles that were allotted for them in that post-war era.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a, and it's almost like the more the author is aware of fashion as a means of creating identity or a means of a performance, the more it can be kind of a prison. And, you know, can you escape this? Is this something that other people are defining for you and and does it limit you to be in that kind of a, a costume or a, a uniform
2: yes i think that's part of the the challenge for for consumers it's like you know a 16 year old girl might see a trend of i don't know rocker style clothes and think that's me i'm sort of a rebel i want to wear exactly that look but that's not really what personal style is all about it's kind of taking a piece from this style and taking a piece from here and putting together something that really feels like you and expresses your identity. It's not just copying exactly what someone else is doing.
1: Right. Um, so I
2: think, I think we see characters in these novels grappling with that as well.
0: Yeah. And in real life, we see that too. And and let's introduce something that's probably been more prominent, I'm guessing in the last 20 years or so, which is, characters white characters or suburban characters who want to be urban who want to be black who want to wear the the clothes of the rappers or who are i think characters who would adopt native american outfits and and or accessories and and the sort of what goes along with that you get kind of a uh, on the one hand, they would say, well, it's an homage. It's, it's it's because I love this culture and because I want to be this culture. And then on the other hand, you have, well, are you just trying to appropriate it? And is this really the authentic you? And do you really have a right to wear these clothes? And I'm guessing that you saw that playing out in fiction
1: as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I devote a lot of attention to cultural appropriation in this book. And part of the challenge is that I, I don't think there's any From cultural appropriation, it is in a way American identity. We are a our our mainstream identity is appropriation, and Mm. that's also what fashion is. This season, we're influenced by these, you know, Cambodian hats and these. It's it's a whole history of appropriation. But I think what where it gets especially egregious is when it's one thing to say, okay, I'm honoring this, but really when the when people are donning these clothes, often they just think it confers something on them. They're not really trying to understand the culture. Um, I specifically talk about wearing headdresses or a uh, war bonnet at Coachella as like something sexy and cool that, or th- what, what some people think is sexy and cool. These are uh, sacred items to different Plains tribes. And... People don't know any, the history behind them when they wear them. They just think, oh, it looks really cool to wear this with my jean cutoffs and my, my crop top. And I look very spiritual and ethereal in my Instagram photos with it on. And when people are defensive about it, I've read articles where people say like, oh, you know, my grandmother's Cherokee. War bonnets aren't a Cherokee thing. They're, you know, a, a Plains tribe thing. It's, it's, so it's not really getting to know the culture behind it. It's more just, I think, you know, I think that this particular item will confer this quality onto me and then that's going to be, that's why I want to wear it. And then I'm going to justify it however I can. Hmm. So I think there, there might be an appreciation similarly for hip hop music among suburban teens who want to dress like hip hop artists. But there's, I think a difference between, I like this music and I like the way it makes me feel and it expresses my angst versus really understanding a cultural identity or the experiences behind it. So um, there's always kind of a. I don't like to draw a line of this is okay and this isn't okay. I think it's just too complicated. But I think being aware, being being aware of why you're wearing something or what you think it confers on you, what you think it symbolizes. I think. Asking those questions becomes important.
0: Right. And for us, who we're not trying to decide what to wear or how to judge (laughs) people in real life, but how to interpret the fiction, being sensitive to what the author may be intending to convey to us by putting that character in a headdress at a concert or by having that character wear a certain type of outfit that may or may not match that character's social, actual social background, uh, it seems like it, it gives the author a very powerful tool to make a commentary and a kind of shorthand about the characters and the culture.
2: Absolutely. It does. It's often, I mean, you mentioned earlier in your list, um, fashion kind of used to mock a character. Mm. And you're making me think of a character in Zanzi, Senna's Caucasia, this older white man who you know, on the surface seems just like a harmless, nice guy who um, smokes a lot of pot, but he is constantly, you know, wearing these Jamaica shirts and listening to reggae. And he thinks that this gives him some kind of street cred or something by that he lived in Jamaica for a little bit of time. And Sen is clearly poking fun at a particular type of person by dressing him in this way and making him talk in this way and listen to this music so i think that's that's one way that the authors can kind of poke fun at that at that pattern
0: right and it, it did make me think something i wanted to ask you about is uh the connection that you probably have seen with fashion meaning literally the clothes people are wearing but also the way they have their hair the food they're eating the language or the slang that they're using the hobbies that they have and the music that they listen to there's a lot of different ways that people construct their identity and I'm guessing that you often will see sort of a a package of these riding along together in a character
2: absolutely i mean that's that's one of the things I enjoy about literature just as a as a cultural studies person um, I pay attention to what they're eating I, pay, I mean all of these details details matter to me and um, I think matter to the the writers too they're You know the the kind of culture that we consume says a lot about uh, says a lot about who we are and the world in which we live.
0: Yeah, here's a tool that I think authors have lost that they used to have is cigarettes and the brand of cigarette. I think that used to be quite a strong cultural signifier that that authors could use whether the character was smoking Marlboro Reds or you know something else that all of them had their own little. Uh, well here's the type of person who buys this type of cigarette and and i'm I think it's harder to use something like that nowadays.
2: I was actually just joking about this with a colleague in creative writing the other day. I always saw. Mentions of cigarettes in novels almost as a way to break up dialogue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She took a drag on her cigarette. (laughs) Why? She asked. You know, just a way to kind of avoid having large blocks of dialogue. Yeah. But um, you're right. I mean, now that carries too many connotations, but uh, it still can work as a a way of characterizing someone. It's just going to carry a very different connotation than yeah, It did say in the 1950s when it was something kind of cool and rebellious.
0: Yeah. And we maybe don't have as strong a sense of, well, what brand does, does what mean? I mean, I still see mm-hmm. in shows people will walk in and, and ask for American spirits from a, a store owner. And that sort of says something. But I think the, the difference between... I don't know, camels and, and uh, I can't even think of another brand, uh, Marlboros, or, you know, I think Marlboro. it's, yeah, I think it's probably a little bit lost on us as to whether that means someone is trying to be a cowboy or trying to be a, a sophisticated person.
2: Oh, yes. Or if they use a cigarette holder or something, yeah. I mean, they're, they're all kinds of, <laughs> we're a, a pipe. I mean, we've lost a lot of, uh, a lot, a lo- lost a lot of symbolic tools. Yeah, but probably for a good cause.
1: How
0: about tattoos? Is that something that you see more in contemporary fiction?
2: I I've never really paid that much attention to tattoos, but that is in part my own my own personal bias. I don't have tattoos, I uh, and I don't know. There's a whole culture around tattoo art that is that is rich and interesting and complicated, and that I'm not. I'm not as much a part of. So if someone has a tattoo in a novel and we get details about it, then of course that's part of the characterization of that character. Right. Or that's part of that character's persona. Sometimes in a very literal way yeah. where there's not gonna... really much to read into it.
1: <laughs> I
0: was going to say, it's probably pretty on the nose. Like he had a skull tattoo on his bicep or something like that. Okay, there's a here's a bad guy. Here's a, a tough, dangerous guy or you know, he had a question mark or a the name, you know, a, a name or a word that would really spell out for us, okay, this is who that person is.
2: Right. Or, I mean, it's, again, something people can use to poke fun of a character, you know, the, the person who has the, the white character who has, like, the tribal tattoo that he, he has to talk about the personal meaning for an hour to everyone he meets. Like, that's, again, a way of kind of poking fun. So, I could see it's definitely something that i I would put into that larger box of kind of fashion signifiers it's It is a kind of fashion statement. Um, I just don't know as much about the nuances of of uh, different types of tattoo art that i that I wish i I did that would um help me navigate some of the the subtleties of of those moments
0: right, okay. My last question is the connection between or maybe the difference I should say you know w- when we talk about films and television all the characters have to be dressed in some way <laughs> as i say that i'm i'm probably putting naked people in in the minds of the listeners and <laughs> they might say well some movies <laughs> some movies there are no clothes but you know what i mean in in fiction you might have characters who go the whole book and we never see what they're wearing It's not necessarily something that the author or an entire novel might slide by where the author hasn't described any of the clothes of any of the characters. And, And I'm wondering, do the choices matter more when authors talk about it in fiction than you would see if you were watching a film and noticing what the characters were wearing in the film? Because it is something that the author has to kind of go out of their way to describe? Or do you... Do you not notice as much of a difference? I mean, I guess on the flip side is the authors can explain a lot more about the clothes and kind of talk about uh, why they were chosen and what the character was thinking when he or she put it on that day. And maybe the fashion that we see in films and television just sort of flies right by because we know that, well, that's characters have to wear something and we just don't it's not called out for us. So have you ever thought about the difference in the way that a an author might use clothing and fashion choices versus what we see on the screen?
2: I think on the screen, we're dealing with a visual spectacle. The costume designer is, especially with an adaptation, Mm. they're not just having to think about being true to something in the novel about the character. They're having to think about the spectacle, um, what's going to woo an audience, and um, what's going to resonate with an audience about the character. I'm thinking about just, For example, the the film Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, uh, I've read the Truman Capote novel and just kind of skimmed over the details of Holly Golightly's clothes in a lot of it. And she wears a slim black dress and pearl choker. Mm. But in the film, that opening scene of Audrey Hepburn and that gorgeous Givenchy black gown with the multi-strand pearl necklace and the long black gloves in front of Tiffany eating a croissant. I mean, it's... It's just so iconic, it's such a spectacle, and it conveys such elegance while also conveying a walk of shame at the same time. Mm. You know, it's just that one scene says so much. Uh, Another example that comes to mind is, you know, Margaret Mitchell in Gone with the Wind spends pages describing Scarlett's clothes and the norms behind each choice. You know, she can only show two inches of her slippers past her skirt, or else it's scandal, you know, uh, Mm. things like that. And yet, even though the film leaves out those details, there's still, it, it, it says so much in the spectacle of those ridiculously large gowns. In the barbecue scene, Scarlett and her dress are taking up like 80 square feet of space and she's surrounded by men bringing her food. And that says so much about that character that you don't need... 20 pages to kind of characterize what a flirt she is and how big her dress is. And, you know, it's just, you're just hit with that scene. So I think there are opportunities with a visual spectacle that you don't have access to in page, but at the same time, there are challenges. You know, I think when people went to watch the the recent passing adaptation, they might've been thinking, Ooh, 1920s, I'm going to see flapper dresses. Right the costume designer was like "That's not Chicago in the early or in the mid 1920s. these women wouldn't have been wearing flapper dresses. This is what they would have worn. I think um, there's often a dissonance between maybe what the audience expects of a period or you know a particular location and it, the film has to kind of navigate between meeting those expectations versus being true to the the novel, the time period, all of these other elements. Mm.
0: Right. Okay. Well, there is so much here. It it seems like such a, a simple subject. And as soon as you start thinking about it and digging into it, it reveals so much. For listeners who want to get even deeper into it, I would recommend this book by our guest, Professor Cardin. It is called Fashioning Character, and it's available in bookstores everywhere. The author is Lauren S. Cardin. Professor Cardin, thank you for joining me on the history of literature.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Professor Cardin for joining me today, and please do check out her books. Very interesting stuff. And my thanks to Vita Sackville-West for loving, and to Virginia Woolf for being loved, and to John Kennedy Toole for his look at Ignatius Riley whose outfit was acceptable by any theological and geometrical standards, however abstruse, and which suggested a rich inner life. Speaking of... (laughs) What do you think I'm going to pick out of there? What do you think I'm going to pick out of there? A rich inner life? No, not a chance. Abstruse? Maybe. Or I was going to (laughs) say, speaking of acceptable theological and geometrical standards, although it's debatable. In any case, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.